Hello, working people of Southwest Washington. You're listening to episode 18 of Working to Live in Southwest Washington, produced by the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council. We're also a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, with over 100 radio shows and podcasts for working people just like you. Find out more about the network at laborradionetwork.org. I'm Shannon Myers. And I'm Harold Phillips. And before we get started, we always want to remind you that the views and opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council, its affiliate unions, our guest unions, or employers, not even their state representatives. Nobody but themselves. Oh, you are sneaky. You're just planting the seeds for what we're going to talk about this week. But before we get into that, I just have to ask, did you get your COVID vaccine? Heck, yes, I did. I actually have a autoimmune disorder. So I was eligible a little bit earlier than other people. And as soon as my husband and my 16-year-old daughter were eligible, We also got them in the start of the vaccine, and our whole family is going to be vaccinated by May 18th, fully vaccinated. Kids are back to school. My daughter got a part-time job at Wendy's, and oh my gosh, it feels good to be somewhat normal. Yeah, you know, the vaccinations are making a difference, but normal feels like it's a long way off, and dealing with the world that we're finding ourselves in, particularly the inequities that the COVID pandemic exposed, has been a big thrust of the legislative session that just ended in Washington State Capitol in Olympia. Oh, gosh, you know, the pandemic definitely let everybody know what we needed. And it's pretty basic stuff. Child care, Wi-Fi, vaccines, funding. A fair shake at a job, unemployment. These basic things that we took for granted, or I should say a part of our community took for granted because not everybody is treated the same. Not everybody has the same opportunities. And we need to make sure that when we do make legislation, when we do pass laws, that it includes all of us, not just the few. So a lot of people have called the 2021 Washington Legislative Session historic, and it has been for a number of reasons. We're going to talk to just a few of the people that made this year's session historic. But before we get started, Harold, I wanted to let our listeners know that we always do our best to invite all of our representatives to come on our show. Unfortunately, we did not get everybody to respond, but we are so grateful to those who came to the show and made time to talk with us about what they did for working people this year up in Olympia. So let's start with Sharon Wiley, who represents Washington's 49th Legislative District. Thanks so much for joining us, Sharon. Always my pleasure. So other than the fact that most of this session was remote for the first time in history, what is the biggest thing about your work this session that you would call historic for all of us working people here in Southwest Washington? Well, we went into this session 
determined to focus on four priorities, addressing the impacts of COVID, returning the economy to health so that people have their jobs and they have their income and they can live, um, climate change and equity. And I'm vice chair of transportation and leading up to the session, we did 81 meetings with 101 stakeholders just on transportation alone. And we wove those themes into our conversation about what we do about transportation, what does our future look like? And the whole session was focused that way. And we did it in a variety of ways. And we were able to do it partly because there was federal help that was really key. In transportation alone, we're able to keep the projects going without having them grind to a halt and lay people off. But we accomplished some major, major goals that we've been trying to accomplish for a long time. The working family tax credit, um, huge. Right. It was something that had been on the table and unfunded since I think 2008. We made it part of the regular budget. In addition to that, we finally got a capital gains tax through. And that's going to be essential in order to make sure that we can do the good things that we intend to do that are the policies that the people expect from us. And that's going to be somewhat delayed because there's going to be a court challenge. But, you know, I've served on the finance committee where we're looking at all aspects of tax policy, um, trying not to rely so heavily on sales tax, which is so regressive, and property taxes, which is so hard on seniors with fixed incomes that are trying to age in their home. Yes. In addition, we paid probably the best and deepest and most profound attention to equity issues, both addressing the past, the present, and the future. In our transportation planning, we looked at what the impact has been on communities of color um, in terms of pollution, in terms of dividing a community, and then our work on climate change. Uh, We got a low-carbon fuel standard in place. We've heard a lot about environmental issues and climate change. How does the low-carbon fuel standard help working people? So many jobs are associated with green energy. Um, During the past two recessions, the growth in jobs in solar and wind has far exceeded the growth in coal and fossil fuels. The low-carbon fuel standard helps us phase out high-carbon fuels. Right now, we're making low-carbon fuels for other states. And we're talking biofuels and other fuels that can be made out of agricultural products, for instance. And those are being used in other states, but not in our state. What we're finding is that technology is getting us there quicker than we thought. You know, other countries are phasing out automobiles that use fossil fuels and going electric. The low carbon fuel standard is helping us be ready as technology moves us forward. And so we've got several bills passed that continue the electrification infrastructure that we're going to need. So Representative Wiley, we had talked about in our shows previously about this issue of broadband and people not having Wi-Fi access. What did you do this session to increase that to all of our communities that are needing that? We had a bill to treat broadband as a utility and to allow our utility companies and public utility organizations to provide retail broadband. That is infrastructure that is absolutely necessary for our education. I I feel for the teachers and the parents who had to scramble to help kids learn through this. 
we've learned a lot about where the holes are, and some of those holes were filled in this very difficult session. One of the bills I'm proudest of is my broadband bill that will integrate broadband infrastructure into all of our transportation projects. So we only dig once. Sometimes if you need to cross a bridge or a canyon, you know, the private sector isn't going to provide that. But if we incorporate that into our new bridge, we can lease that part to a private sector company that can then provide it on the ground or the public utility that's providing power to that community. So I think we did a more well-rounded, comprehensive approach to putting people first and doing things that preserve people's livelihoods in the short term and the long term. Just little things like making sure that our small businesses that had to lay people off because they had no choice, that they're not hit with disproportionate unemployment insurance increases. That was one of the first things we did. You know, the formula in the past has been you charge people more if they lay people off a lot. And this time, the people that were laid off a lot were lower wage people, um, restaurants that vulnerable people depend on that were disproportionately impacted by the COVID. And those are businesses that are not high margin businesses either. So they couldn't afford a giant increase in their unemployment tax. Wow. Representative Wiley, it sounds like although you were on Zoom, you guys got a lot of stuff done. I'm very, very proud of what we've done. Um, And it wasn't easy. I think a lot of us have a new disease called Zoom butt from 12 hours of sitting in front of a screen. (laughs) You know, the good news is that there were more people that tuned in and asked questions and were in our committee meetings remotely who would never be able to drive to Olympia. And I'm very committed to make sure we don't stop doing that so that people that can't get to Olympia can fully participate in our democratic process. You guys got a lot of stuff done. And what really makes me happy is that you said your number one thought in your mind was people first. Because a lot of people in our community around this nation for years have said, you know what? Government sucks. What do they do for us? All they do is sit up there and bicker. Well, it sounds like you got some things done that are actually going to help. So bravo. Bravo, Representative Wiley. Good job. Well, and I think I want everybody to know that newspapers are not liberal or conservative, they are negative. How we get along is never as bad as it looks in the newspapers. Or on Twitter, or on Facebook, or any of the other ways that people seem to get their Exactly. We may differ on what we think the proper role of government is or how the economy works, but nobody in the legislature, um, even if I really disagree with them, gets up in the morning and goes up there to try to do a bad job. Well... Representative Wiley, I know our time is coming to a close, but since we're talking about Facebook, Twitter, that sort of thing, how do the listeners get a hold of you if they want to talk about some of these issues that you brought up? Thanks to our fabulous staff, listeners got a hold of me the same way they always have these days, which is they can send an email to my office. And I, I look at those and I have an assistant, Megan, who, who helps me so much at making sure that people get an answer. When people didn't know what to do with their unemployment benefits, whether they couldn't get through, they didn't have approval, I heard they were calling the representative's offices and your LAs were actually taking the time out of their day to help our community and hopefully get them the funds that they need for their families to survive. Is that true? 
you know, Megan helped so many people get connected with their unemployment benefits. We all know there was a lot that went wrong in people getting what they needed to live. People still were able to um, get through to Megan and get a telephone conversation with her or with me. Last question. Can you give our listeners just a quick nutshell of where things are in the replacement process for the I-5 bridge? We're three to four years away from making a final decision. Um, There are several advisory groups going. There's a big website that lets you know everything that's been studied in the past and everything that we're looking at now. We're trying to thread the needle between using everything that's possible to use that was done before, updating information where things have changed, and then coming up with a scenario and an approach and design elements, making sure that there's a critical mass of public support for where we are when we're ready to go and where we don't have to totally start over. We're trying to make efficient use of the dollars that have been spent and not assume that we can rubber stamp the same plan as before. And we're working very, very closely with our Oregon compatriots and with the different communities to put together a plan that won't fall apart at the last minute. Well, it sounds like there's going to be plenty of work to do as you move into the 2022 session. So thank you so much for joining us, Representative Sharon Wiley. Glad to be here. Thank you. Now let's stay in Washington's 49th Legislative District and talk to a real friend of the show, Representative Monica Stonier. Thanks so much for joining us, Monica. Thank you so much for having me. It's always great to come back. And of course, Representative Stonier is escorting her sunglasses sitting outside because this woman cannot be indoors. She is an outside girl. It is true that if the weather is nice, I am outside and I take meetings outside in my yard and I certainly take podcast interviews outside. So Sister Monica Stonier, being a union member and a working person yourself, I guarantee you had some goals that you wanted to accomplish in this last session. By your standards, what was historic? What was great for working people that was accomplished in this 2021 session? Well, the first thing I would say is just that we had a session. (laughs) I mean, if we think about how many other state legislatures were either unable to function because of an outbreak or unable to function because they were, in some cases, threatened because of the challenges that state capitals faced after the insurrection on January 6th. I'm just incredibly proud of the fact that Washington State Legislature was actually able to hold not only uh, a functional session, but an incredibly powerful one for working families. This year, with frankly bipartisan support, we funded the Working Families Tax Credit, which put dollars back into the pockets of Washingtonians who need it most. So those making the least in our state not only got a little bit of relief from our efforts to try and reverse the most regressive upside down tax code in the nation, but they also just get flat out cash in their pockets. Let's drill into that a little bit, because I think the listeners may have heard of the Working Families Tax Credit, but how does it work exactly? You say that money goes into their pockets. How do they get the money from that rebate? 
So the tax credit is of like $500 to about $1,000 per year. One in four of our state's children are in a family that would benefit from this policy. If you think about 25% of our children are in a family that would benefit from this, that tells you how many of our families are eligible. The Department of Revenue will create a process by which taxpayers can apply and according to their eligibility, be given a return on their taxes paid. So, I mean, just to be specific, if you are a taxpayer in the year of 2020 with an adjusted gross income of less than 15,800 with no qualifying children, less than 42,000 with one child, 47,000 with two, and, and likewise, you'll be able to apply for the working families tax credit. And again, this is to give our lowest wage earning families a credit on the tax that they pay because we know that Washington state is the worst when it comes to taxing the lowest paid families at the greatest rate. And we need to reverse that. Well, the legislature took a big step at reversing that iniquity with another law that came out of this historic session, right? Yes, we finally passed the capital gains excise tax, which you'll hear our opponents call an income tax, but it's not a tax on income. It's a tax on a transaction when you sell things like stocks, bonds, um, one of your multiple homes. We're talking about, you know, the richest people in our state by far. You'll hear some criticism, too, about, you know, we've got people on fixed incomes that are living off of their investments. Yes, we understand that that is the case and we want to protect those people. That's why Washington State passed a policy that has the most generous exemption. So if you're drawing down from your capital gains, not just like the initial investment, but the gains on that investment, not until it's more than $250,000 a year do you pay the Washington State capital gains tax. So if you're living on a fixed income and you're living off your investments, you only get to the point where you're paying this tax if you're drawing down more than $250,000 a year on those investments. So we're talking about (laughs) the richest of the rich in the state who will be paying this tax. Not even the top 1%. Right. So So, let's get real, people. These are rich people who need to pay their fair share. This is not a bad thing. This is giving their part to support our communities. Get real. Yeah, you know, the the scare tactics around this policy will always be the case when a state for the first time implements something like this. And we are so far behind. I mean, we are literally the worst state in the union when it comes to tax breaks for the rich. So this is about going in the right direction to make sure that the ultra uber wealthy in our state are paying their fair share for the benefit that they get from the livability, the workforce that we have provided in Washington state. And speaking of the workforce, you were telling us before the interview that part of the money that's raised by this excise tax is going to help a lot of working families who are looking for childcare, right? Absolutely. We have heard over and over that the hardest thing families have to consider when returning to the workforce is where their kids are going to go. The lack of childcare, affordable childcare, has been a problem long before the pandemic hit. 
And one of the best memories I have was speaking on the House floor in support of the Fair Start for Kids Act, which takes the revenue from the capital gains and puts that into affordable child care and ECAP slots. ECAP? ECAP is like Early Childhood Education Assistance Program, I think. You know, the story I hear over and over is this working mom that is like a single mom of three with a toddler and struggling to get on her feet. ECAP provides early child care for her littlest, before and after school care for her grade school kiddo, and provides connections to social services that helps her get connected with job skills, get prepared for a job interview, social services that she might need, and provides a pathway out of poverty for the entire family, starting with child care for the toddler. The one thing that is the crux of it all, and then building out what is it the rest of this single mom might need in order to be successful. I don't know how many stories I've heard over the years of people saying it's been the one thing that turned us around. You know, families just can't get back to work without affordable childcare. And that has been true for a long time. It's been blindingly true in this pandemic for our families of color in particular. You know, the women of color have left in droves the workforce because they are the primary care providers for children, for the elderly in their families. So I know that there are a lot of people out in our community right now who are looking to services for maybe the first time in their life because Mm -hmm. they've never been in situations where they've needed to rely on services before. Do you have, I don't know, a resource of where to go for help if they need it for certain things? I think the best resource, but the least comfortable is calling my office. Our legislative assistants in in legislative offices are trained and equipped with all kinds of connections and phone numbers and resources, either locally or at the state level. But calling a legislator's office, I understand, is uh, oftentimes uncomfortable or unfamiliar. I think the other option is what is most comfortable for folks. And that might be, you know, the school counselor or the folks at your kiddos school that has been connected with your family that has been able to answer questions. Because we try to make sure that people in schools that have the frontline support to families also have the resources they need. What is helpful there is that it's somebody that the family knows. So, you know, there's two approaches, but I would strongly encourage folks to just reach out to my office or your own state representative's office because uh, we do a good job of making sure we know what the state level supports could be, but also what could just be helpful in your own neighborhood. So this brings up this point of our representatives and senators actually being there to help the community. We just talked to Representative Wiley, and she was stating that her LA uh, legislative assistant was actually helping people with their unemployment benefits Mm -hmm. and trying to get through unemployment. And I don't think people realize that there are people who work in government who consider themselves servants, civil servants to their communities. And wow, I mean, the first thing you said is call my office, I'll help you. 
I often call my legislative assistant and say, what kinds of phone calls have been coming in this week? What are we doing? How are we helping my community? You know, in our offices, we know that our number one job is to support constituents with whatever the problem is when they call in. It's not a political call. It's really about constituent service, public service, customer service, in my view. We answer way more phone calls about people who need a little bit of help, assistance, or a phone number for a connection than we do about people who call about things that are like hyper-political. You know, I've said for a long time that um, when my community doesn't feel they're well represented by an elected official, they should give us a call and see if we can't help out. All of us should be working towards serving anybody in any part of our Southwest Washington region. Well, our time is coming to an end, but I do have one more question for you. As our listeners know, you are not just the representative for the 49th Legislative District. You're also the majority floor leader. Mm -hmm. As listeners may remember from episode 14, you talked about working with the minority in order to get bills to the floor and make sure that things keep moving in the House. Now, we've been watching the legislative session our neighbors to the South in Oregon have had over the past year, and it's been a mess with the minority party walking out, doing everything they can to slow down their legislative process. How have you managed to have such a productive legislative session in contrast with Oregon? Well, there's no question that we have a cohort of, at least in the House, um, the far-right Republicans. Fortunately for us in Washington state, we also have a good number of reasonable problem-solving Republicans that care very deeply about delivering for the constituencies that they've been elected to represent. And that means they come to the table when we talk about things like police reform. They offered amendments, many of which we took. They were in a problem-solving stance that delivered for Washington state. So whether you're a Republican a Democrat, or of any other party, when you come to the table trying to solve problems rather than being an obstructionist, we get really good work done. And we had some good examples of that. I give a great deal of credit to those Republicans elected in Washington state that want to deliver for their communities over being hyper-partisan. We have examples of both here in Southwest Washington, but I know I spend a lot more time working with people who are problem solvers rather than hyper-partisan. You know, that is so refreshing to hear because I'm ready to start hearing that you guys are talking about policy, not politics. Let's bring it back to bread and butter issues of how we make people's life better. So thank you for showing leadership. Thank you for working across the aisle, because honestly, as working people, we don't care if you're a Democrat, a Republican, an independent. We just want you to work for working people. We want to be able to feed our families, put gas in the car, have a house, and maybe take a vacation every now and then. So thank you. And I'd offer my very same thanks to those Republicans in Washington state that have committed themselves to thinking about their communities over politics. Well, let's hope that that's going to continue into 2022. So, Monica, if our listeners want to get a hold of you or your legislative aide, who apparently is superhuman and can answer all questions, (laughs) how would they go about doing that? The best way is to call our legislative office or to email 
my office and I'm monica.stonier at ledge, L-E-G dot wa.gov. And my legislative assistant's name is Erica Odom, Erica with a K. So E-R-I-K-A dot O-D-E-M at ledge.wa.gov. You're welcome to look up the numbers. I think email works the best right now because people are working remotely, but we will get back to you and support our callers anytime and to the greatest of our ability to do so. Well, we're not going to hold you up from doing that gardening. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Representative Stonier, Monica, our sister. Thank you very much. Now, we're going to head a little further north and talk to State Senator Karen Kaiser, representing Washington's 33rd Legislative District in King County. In addition to representing voters in Des Moines, SeaTac, Kent, and Renton, Senator Kaiser is also the chair of the Senate's Labor, Commerce, and Tribal Affairs Committee, and she's the Senate's President Pro Tempore. Thanks so much for joining us, Senator. Thank you for having me, Harold. So, Karen, before we get started, can you just explain what the President Pro Tem of the Senate is and what you do? Well, my real work is as a state senator representing my district and the constituents and as the chair of the committee I'm on and on the other committees. I'm also on health care and on ways and means. President Pro Tem is a position sort of like a backstop. You preside on the Senate floor when the lieutenant governor is not available to do so because of some health reason or some conflict in scheduling. So you have the really interesting position of being a regular member on the floor of the Senate, but sometimes you get called forward and you have to change totally your mindset and your position and preside over the whole floor. And that means a lot of pro forma and formality and procedural things, but it also means a mindset because you're representing the institution no longer just your constituents or the parts of the committees that you're on. So that means that you particularly had to deal with a lot given the legislature's remote session this year, right? The first time that's ever happened in history? It was an amazing session. We would get on Zoom at eight in the morning and we would stay on Zoom or go to Teams and go back to Zoom until eight at night. And I called myself a zombie zombie by the end of every day because my brain was mush. There was no time to process. You would go from one thing to another to another with no downtime. It was intense. It was productive. I suspect one of the reasons it was such a productive session this year was because the lobbyists couldn't get to us. And it's, it's a fact. Every time in session, when you walk from your office to the floor, to a hearing, to the bathroom, there's a lobbyist on your elbow dropping little pieces of information in your ear, mostly negative, mostly trying to kill things. <laughs> when they didn't have that opportunity, we got a lot more done. So I'm thinking maybe there's a value to virtual. <laughs> so... Aside from the remote aspect, what are some of the high points of this year's session that would qualify this as being historic for working people here in Washington? Well, we really did pass historic legislation for working people in Washington state, I believe, but also for all people who work or don't work. And one of the biggest pieces was tax reform. Two big pieces there. One is a high income capital gains tax that will only apply to the very wealthiest of wealthy people. And the other side of that that's so important is the Working Families Tax Credit. 
which will mean a rebate of sales taxes paid by lower income working families. How do regular people, let's say Stacy, who is a single mom, she's got two kids, and she has got to figure out how to get child care help. Is there going to be places they can go, resources? Because I think that's where people's disconnect is, is you guys are doing so much good, but people really don't know what it is, how to utilize it, and how it will help them. We do have a child care resources network that can refer Stacy or any other person who needs to find child care in their area to local licensed child care providers, whether it's a child care center or a family home. That's an infrastructure piece that we maintain. But what we did with the Fair Start for Kids bill this year is increase the spaces that are paid for by the state for child care for low-income working families and to increase the subsidies for parents who have to pay for child care. You know, child care is expensive. A working family can spend as much on child care as you do on college tuition. I know firsthand about child care right now because I actually have three brand new grandbabies. You can believe it. Yeah, a 27-year-old having three grandbabies. I know it's hard to believe, listeners. I know, but (laughs) (laughs) I have three grandbabies that are one and under, and they have parents who are working full-time who are, you know, barely making it. And when I asked them what they're going to do when they go back to work, they said childcare was $1,200 a month for an infant. I mean, you can't even make a living wage working at a Walgreens, which is where mom works and, you know, husband is a proud IBEW member, but you need two incomes. And how can you, how can you go to work just to pay for daycare? I know a lot of people may say, what does childcare have to do with jobs? Well, I'll tell you firsthand, <laughs> if you don't have childcare, you don't work or you work to pay for childcare. I think it's extremely important that that's understood. There's been a lot of conversation lately about how unemployment benefits are so rich that people aren't taking jobs. It's not the unemployment benefits, which are not that rich. It's that there isn't enough childcare or schooling, in-person schooling going on so that working parents have the freedom to take a job and commit to hour after hour and week after week and day after day. So that's absolutely essential for our economic recovery. It's infrastructure. I am so glad you mentioned that, especially the idea that people don't want to work. (laughs) If only it was that easy, right? Yeah, if only. People do want to work. And a lot of working moms are very frustrated right now because they don't have the infrastructure available so they can return to their jobs. You know, it was an extraordinary session. We were able, uh, in terms of essential workers especially, to actually treat them as essential, not just call them essential, not just give them heart, but to do something to make their lives better. Right. So what we got done is we will now, during a pandemic or a statewide health emergency, we will treat that disease as an occupational illness. And if you're working at the grocery store or at the child care center, or you're driving the bus or in the school, and you get that disease, it will be presumed to be occupational and you will be covered for both your health benefits and your time loss with presumptive workers' compensation. This was an approach we used originally about a decade ago with firefighters who were getting lung diseases. And we 
provided a presumptive coverage for firefighters. This is the same kind of thing. We don't need to prove that you got COVID when you're working at a grocery store. We just need to help you. Another bill we passed allows essential workers or any worker who wants to use their own personal protective equipment, if their employer doesn't provide it, to use it. And the employer can't tell people that we don't want to scare the customers, don't wear your mask. That's no longer allowed. So that's another little important respect piece that we got through this year. And then the governor asked for legislation to protect people from retaliation if they complain about the protocols or the standards of safety in their workplace. And this goes beyond this emergency. Workers will have protections if they complain about a safety issue. And there will be consequences if they are in any way disciplined or terminated because they complained that something wasn't right in the way the workplace was running. The other really big thing that we got done that I'm just thrilled about is we won overtime protections for farm workers for the very first time in our state. Yes! Now, as you all know, probably, the Fair Labor Standards Act was enacted in the 1930s. And when it was enacted, farm workers were left behind. Um, This situation in Washington state was opened up in a Supreme Court case last year when dairy workers sued for overtime. And the state Supreme Court said, yes, you deserve to have overtime as dairy employees. We took that as an opening to say, well, what about the rest of the agriculture workforce, the farm workers in the fields, in the apple orchard, in the meat packing plants, all of the agricultural areas. So we got a deal with both the growers and the farm workers unions to pass a bill to create overtime standards for farm workers. Beginning in January of next year, we will be the first state in the nation to have overtime for farm workers after 40 hours a week of work. Senator, you and I know that farm workers get fired and harassed if they report a safety issue, but I don't think a lot of our listeners knew that. And I think it's really important that our listeners understand that just because you have possibly an eight to five job, maybe you sit in a chair in a cubicle in office, which I've done before too, uh, not much danger there, I get it. But there are people who go out and risk their lives and they are scared to report if there's any kind of conditions that will actually kill them on the job. And then you have workers who feed us, pick our food, who are human beings, and they're not getting paid overtime. I hope people wake up and realize that this is happening now in 2021. And it's crazy. Thank you for addressing these issues. I thought one of the strangest things during the pandemic when people were working remotely that they thought everybody was working remotely. Well, less than 50% of the workforce could work remotely. Anybody who's in healthcare is hands-on. Anybody who builds things is hands-on. Anybody who serves the public is hands-on. And they don't get to work from a computer terminal at home in their bedroom slippers. And those folks who go out and pick the trees and the apples and the cherries and take care of us in the hospitals and nursing homes and the childcare centers and the grocery stores and the buses. When you look around our economy, you will see how many people really are essential. So the 2021 session's over, right? And I'm 
sure that you are already looking. Come on, Senator, you're already looking to 22. You already know what you want coming up. So, all right, give us a sneak peek. The work is never done, Shannon. It really has uh, opened doors for other options. One of the things that I really want to take a deep dive in and am working on already is to take a look at our apprenticeship programs. We funded a lot of new innovative apprenticeships in our budget for behavioral health and for licensed practical nurses and for teachers and other kind of non-traditional apprenticeships. Normally you're talking about electricians and pipe fitters and carpenters. There's all kinds of apprenticeships. You know, you can become a lawyer through an apprenticeship, but there isn't really um, the understanding or the organization that needs to be in place to put these pieces together so that everybody can access them. You know, apprenticeship is the best kind of four-year degree because you earn while you learn. And then you come out of that apprenticeship and you have a job that you can use for the rest of your life as a professional. And you don't have to depend on just one employer and you don't have to just depend on one location. So there's all kinds of opportunities for people if we take this on. And I've got my eye on that one trying to figure out how can we open the opportunities for everybody. Okay, so I've been calling you Senator all show. But after that comment, I am so calling you sister. <laughs> I, I am such an old sister that I actually have a dues waiver from my union. <laughs> right on. Oh, well, hey, if you need help with the apprenticeship programs, because, you know, I've been thinking for a long time that the idea of education after the K through 12 system has really got to change, you know, going to school and getting degrees where you are paying more for your college degree than what your salary when you graduate can handle. Those types of things should not be happening to our young workforce. We should be setting them up for success and not setting them up to pay bills. <laughs> so I'm really happy to hear about that. And I know labor will be behind you, helping you as much as we can. On that note, if people do want to reach out to you to talk about things like apprenticeships or like some of the other laws that you've mentioned in this show, how would they do that? The best way is probably through email. And my legislative email address is public if anybody wants to get it online. But I could say it's Karen dot. Kaiser, and that's spelled K-E-I-S-E-R, at L-E-G, that means ledge, not leg, dot W-A, meaning Washington, dot G-O-V. And I hope our listeners know that means government. Oh, I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with us, Senator Kaiser. It was such a pleasure. And I thank you, Senator Sister Kaiser, for representing all of us here in Washington State. Thank you so much, Sister Shannon. And thank you, Working People, for joining us on another episode of Working to Live in Southwest Washington, produced by the Southwest Washington Central Labor Council. Hey, by the way, Harold, I hear that Senator Kaiser used to be a TV reporter and a member of SAG-AFTRA. So she's probably pretty happy to hear that this podcast was recorded under a SAG-AFTRA collective bargaining agreement. Well, I know I am. You've had to pay me double for all these long episodes, so it's working out <laughs> great for me. Hey, you get paid for your work, brother, always. Remember, working people, this is your show. We want to know what you want to hear on it.
email us at podcast at swwaclc.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at swwaclc. And don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe to the show. Then you get reminders when we're on so you can plug in your pods and listen to what's going on. And while you're at it, give us five stars or buy a bouquet of roses for a legislative assistant or whatever your podcast platform of choice gives you to let people know that you like what we're doing here. One last thing, folks. We've talked a lot about new and improved laws the Washington State Legislature passed this year that have a direct impact on working families' lives here in the Evergreen State. It really highlights something we've been saying for a while, that what happens on the state and local level has a much bigger impact on your daily lives than what happens at the federal level, you know, in the other Washington. That's why it's so important that you know who your state senators and representatives are and that you communicate with them and their legislative aides so they know what's important to you. You heard what Monica said. She checks in. She wants to know what you are calling her office about. So the next time statewide elections start up and you think to yourself, Ugh, I don't know any of these people. Does it really matter? Think about some of the conversations we've had. It matters. It's not only important to know who your representatives are, but it is very important to know who you're voting for and how they will represent you. The Southwest Washington Central Labor Council, we always send invitations to every single representative in our areas, whether it's to come and interview for an endorsement, whether we have an event going on, or whether we have a podcast show that we'd like to give a legislative update. Because that's important. Absolutely, because we are the voice of working people in our area, and we want to hear from our legislators who want to talk to working people. We'll see you soon. Bye.